HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Roth, Wisconsin, makers of the world's best cheese and pioneers in the U.S. artisan cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. afternoon and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we are going to be featuring not one, but two good food organizations launched within the past five to six years. The first is the Food and Environment Reporting Network, an independent news outlet focusing on the critically underreported areas of food, agriculture, and environmental health. And the second is Farmland LP, a company that forged a new model for how farmland is owned and managed. We will dive into these organizations, um, what they're doing, what changes they are seeking to make to our food system, and why their respective missions are so very important. But before we um, get into that, I want to first welcome my associate producer, Taylor Lanzette, to discuss some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Jenna. What do you have for us? First up, Congress is expected to make a move on California water before the end of the year. The California drought has had major implications on farmers in the state, and Congress has been going back and forth on water infrastructure packages that would send water to central and southern California. Fortunately, it seems as if both Republicans and Dems are aligned here on the exact water provisions, except that some Dems are worried about endangered species protections that some iterations of the bill had included, and that would mean sort of taking some of those out. Um, a rare instance of bipartisanship, it seems oh, like. It's so inspiring. It's so inspiring. <laughs> Let's hope for more of that. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> um, next, the USDA should be finalizing its animal welfare standards for organic poultry and livestock by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this on the show before, um, and it's really going to be interesting to see how it unfolds in Obama's last months. Industry is pushing on the USDA that their new organic standards are heavily ignoring the costs associated with what these improvements would be. 
Yeah, um, these rules would be an ideal, uh, ideological landmark, right, for the totally. administration. Um, and there's really no way to know if the Trump admin would move forward with them. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of the costs are associated with how much space some of the poultry would need for sort of the free range or just um, what it would mean for cages and all that. Yeah, so important stuff. Yeah. We'll see. Um, in, uh, in other transition news, Michael Torrey left his post leading the USDA transition efforts because he really wants to focus on lobbying. <laughs> Sniffle. Sniffle. Um, this came out of Trump's announcement that he wants um, to implement a five-year ban on those working as lobbyists um, once leaving their posts in the administration um, and the transition team. Mm-hmm. So Joel Leftwich, uh, the Senate Ag Committee Republican, staff director is stepping in um and he's a long-term advisor right to senate um ag chairman pat roberts um and previously uh, a few years back he was the senior director for public policy and government affairs at pepsi so we'll see what happens from him yeah and during his time at pepsi he pushed back on michelle obama's nutrition standards um this is really funny he tried (laughs) to redefine what the uh, what we counted as a lunch day, which essentially meant he wanted. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> it's really it's. He wanted to make sure that Pepsi, aka like the sweetened beverage industry, could still sell soda at early morning sports practices in schools across the country. That's great. I hear I hear Pepsi's great for hydration. <laughs> yeah, just a good like thirty grams of sugar <laughs> post workout. Um, so also, uh, it turns out that Mike Pence is all about <sighs> ag. Well, that's good. I mean, it makes sense, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not the ag we're excited about. Um, (laughs) Five of the nine current contenders for ag secretary are coming from Pence's home state of, as Jenna just said, Indiana. Um, And farmers are a bit worried sort of about what some of these folks are supporting, um, specifically around trade obstacles with China. Right now, American farmers export lots of soy, soybean sorghum, and dried grains. What's sorghum? Do you know what sorghum is? It's like a, isn't it like a weed? Let's just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what does this What does this mean for farmers, like particularly in the Midwest, though? Yeah. So, right. It's no surprise that China and the U.S. ag industries are super aligned, uh, and U.S. exports to China are really important for trade and employment. Right. So that means employment in the U.S. Um, and so if Trump pushes on a trade war, which he has been suggesting, these farmers will lose out um, a lot sort of on their business with China because China will go to South America to replace these items and essentially move past us. Um, there's, there is concern about ramp up. So like South America and other parts of the world having enough of this product. Mm-hmm. But if we get pushed out, then we get pushed out. Um, okay. All right. So the other thing that came out this week, um, was a video of Trump addressing the American people. He still hasn't held a press conference, um, (laughs) by the way, but the video, I couldn't help but like compare it. It it was totally reminiscent of something that President Snow in the Hunger Games would do. (laughs) Like, I I just want, like, I like would love to see a screenshot side by side of the two of them because it was like the same thing. Let's make that gif if there isn't. (laughs) Are we qualified to do that? Uh, we'll figure it out. Out. I think we'll figure it out. Um, but anyways, he addressed a few points um, relevant to the ag sector in this video. Um, like Taylor said, doubling down on 
withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership, and he wants to focus on negotiating fair bilateral, bilateral trade deals that will bring jobs and industry back to American shores. Okay. Yeah. He also promised to formulate a rule which says that for every one new regulation, two old regulations must be eliminated. Because in his favorite two phrase, two words, this is so important. It's, it's bigly important. <laughs> it's a disaster. <laughs> yes. I mean, we're it's no secret we're we're pretty big fans of um, regulation on the show, where it makes sense, especially around the environment, which is. Um, you know, something that is I'm particularly concerned about with this announcement about regulations. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also like I want to point out this is not as straightforward as it sounds. And the I like, you know, we'll see if it's possible. It takes a really long time to actually formulate these regulations. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it will hopefully take a long time to undo these. So it's yeah. a nice soundbite. But like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm. You know, a line there, I think, you know, all eyes are on, like, Paris Accord and some of the really big landmark ones. Um, but um, thinking about how capitalism and the environment interact in terms of regulation, we do have some uplifting stories in the show, which we'll get to. We do, exactly. And one note on uh, the Paris Accord, I believe that Monsanto came out last week in support of not withdrawing from the Paris Accord. So on the show, we give credit where credit is due. Um, And that is something we were very excited to hear about. So in, in in a statement, you will definitely not hear very much on Heritage Radio Network. Well done, Monsanto. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it there for today. As always, if you have thoughts on the issues we discussed today or ideas for topics we should cover moving forward, email us at eatingmatters at heritageradionetwork.org or tweet to us at eatmattershrn. Music for this short break is brought to you by Rectech, and this track is called Dues Paid. Joining us next is Sam Fromartz, Editor-in-Chief of the award-winning Food and Environment Reporting Network, or The Fern for short. Um, Fern just released their new book called The Dirt, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Food and Farming, which is an anthology of their work over the past five years, and I'm so pleased it has brought us to the show today. Hi, Sam. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, can you uh, start by giving us an overview of the Food and Environment Reporting Network and the and the work that you do? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit um, investigative news organization, and we do both investigative and explanatory journalism focusing on food, agriculture, and environmental health. Um, we've been around for about five years, mm-hmm. and basically what we do is um, we take story ideas that are either pitched to us by writers or that we come up with ourselves, and we partner with media companies to produce these stories. Um, and so they could be anything from magazines to um, broadcasters, and uh, essentially 
we just focus in on our subject area and try and develop uh, content for these partners that way. Sam, um, I sort of want to give our listeners a break from some of the depressing food-related stories that we went over <laughs> in our um, intro news segment. Um, and Jen and I were both really inspired by the recent um, article that Alexis Adams reported on with the rise of pollinators in the borderlands, which um, we think really is a nice representation of the kind of journalism and coverage that the fern undertakes. Can you give us some background on this story? Yeah, I mean, the background uh, to that is we had seen a lot of stories, obviously, on the decline of bees, Mm -hmm. Um, but we were also beginning to see reports on um, threats to wild pollinators. And these aren't just bees, but, you know, bees and wasps and also birds and bats and and all of these different species that help plants pollinate. And um, they've been in decline globally as well. So we tasked um, um, the reporter with, you know, trying to find a story that elaborated on that. And she came up with a really cool um, subject, which was um, work done by uh, Gary Nabhan, who's a noted ecologist uh, in Arizona, and he's uh, helped start a group that works on the borderlands area of Arizona and Mexico to restore habitat. Um, because if you restore, you know, wild plants, they can help. Um, um, you know, the pollinators uh, survive and thrive as well. And so it was just a really positive story because it was also working with the community in what was a, um, you know, low-income rural area. And this organization now has created jobs for people. So they're not only restoring the environment and healthy conservation, but they're creating jobs for the community who has buy-in into the whole environmental project. So... You know, I was really happy to publish that story with Scientific American, you know, this week when, you know, everybody's anxious and nervous and possibly depressed about the election uh, results and just (laughs) highlighting, you know, a local uh, really positive solution. And and I think these kind of solutions will, you know, will continue. obviously, and, you know, they they might, you know, become more important as things become so uncertain at the national level. Absolutely. Um, So I wanted to follow up on something that you mentioned um, at the top, um, and that was this this new kind of uh, model uh, for journalism. Can you you talk about some of the repercussions, in your opinion, it's had for journalism in general? Yeah, I think it's been really healthy for journalism, um, the nonprofit model, especially because it's, I mean, we have one goal, which is to serve the public. So we do public interest journalism. You know, we're not beholden to to advertisers. Um, we're not, like, feeding clickbait, you know, mm-hmm. to get our, get our numbers up. You know, we're producing real stories, which takes people on the ground, like, you know, Lexus going to Arizona and spending, you know, a week there and really trying to figure out what's going on and then, you know, reporting out a story for for several more weeks. Um, So, you know, I think it's, I think this model is going to be, you know, increasingly important. We we weren't the first to obviously, you know, pursue this, 
but in in a climate of declining media where they were cutting jobs, especially in our area of interest, you know, agriculture, food, environmental reporting, um, you know, we um, came up with something to help fill the gap. Um, and we, we do have a website at the, the fern.org, mm-hmm. but generally our, distri- our distribution happens through partners, you know, with a much bigger reach. Right. So, um, so that's how we reach really diverse audiences is by partnering partnering with other media companies. You know, whether it's Mother Jones or Scientific American or the Washington Post or ABC News or you know whatever it is. Yeah. Um, we'll make a story that that works, but also also fulfills our mission. Um, so something that you uh, touched on and 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 that we've been talking a lot about on the show is the rise of factless um, stories and opinion pieces that are out there and that people are kind of viewing as really credible sources. From an editor-in-chief's perspective, um, I'm wondering if you can give like a piece of advice uh, to our listeners to help them differentiate real fact-based reporting like the kind that you do versus the, frankly, the garbage that seems to be so ubiquitous these days. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of layers to that. And one reason that we started is that blogs and really, you know, opinionated journalism um, were taking off, and they they have continued to grow, obviously. And a lot of that doesn't involve reporting. It just is spouting off, you know, an opinion about something and linking to, you know, different sites that sort of support your view. you know, and then there's the next level, um, and, and I think that can be actually valuable, but I still think, you know, we need reporting to uncover, you know, stories like the one we did in Arizona, and, and we'll talk about a couple other ones down the road. But, um, you know, and the, uh, the the next wave was, you know, sites that just made up content and got widely shared, and obviously that's been in the news, in, in the post-election news. Um, you know, and I think that's really dangerous because really at the heart of any democracy of any healthy society is um, sharing and talking about information, but information that's, that's true. Fact-based. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's, that's true. Um, and in this sort of post-truth era of <laughs> anything goes, you know, you just, you know, people can just put up something that supports um, opinions that already exist, and it supports it with with baseless material. So I think that's really dangerous. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the listeners, I think, you know, I mean, you can do kind of what we do, which is, you know, go to reputable sites. We have a daily food and ag policy briefing that, you know, aggregates material from various news sources. Um, and, and that's that's Ag Insider with Chuck Abbott. Yeah, the, yeah, it's the it's the Ag Insider, uh, and uh, it's on our it's on our site as well, um, and and so I think, you know, you just have to if you see something questionable, or, you know, I would I would, you know, look at who's reporting it. You know, are they reputable? You can find out pretty quickly just by doing you know a Google search and see who's who's linking to them and that that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, if it's a place you've never heard of before, you know, I would take it with a grain of salt, mm-hmm. with a big grain of salt, actually. <laughs> yeah. So, 
in your opinion? Um, I, I, you know, I think that kind of that kind of you know that kind of stuff you know really takes up so much of the bandwidth that it really crowds out um, you know fact-based journalism that can really um, you know stimulate I think much more productive discussion. Yeah. In your opinion, um, how has reporting on food and environmental issues changed in the past few years? Uh, well, you know, I think in the past a lot of food reporting was in the food section, um, and it was, you know, chefs and recipes and that kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it, quite good. And um, I think. You know, with the whole growth of the food movement, I think there's become a much more awareness of all the issues that go into into food and all all the related um, um, you know areas uh, and, and all the things that, that that happen to put food on your plate. And you know, these can be anything from environment to labor issues to how the way you know ocean you know to ocean conservation issues and fishing i mean there's you know to uh toxics in your food i mean there's a lot of a lot of different issues and those are really the kind of things that we try and hit um you know obviously others are reporting on those as well but i think uh, i think that kind of awareness about um, what it takes to put food on your plate has grown, and so I think the appetite for these stories has also increased. Yeah. As Jenna mentioned in her intro, The Fern has a new book out. Can you tell us more about The Dirt? Yeah. So it, it was kind of a cool project. Cause, so we were started um, five years ago in 2011, and, you know, it just seemed like an appropriate moment um, we've continued to grow, um, and I mean, when we started, it was you know we none of us were paid. Um, we you know we were just trying to get going like any startup, and now um, you know we we have an organization with seven employees, and we work with over thirty freelancers. So so it's quite you know it's 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 quite healthy and, and robust. Um, and in that five-year period, we've produced a lot of great stories. Um, one of the drawbacks of our model is if you see our story in the media, you'll probably associate it with the media outlet as opposed to us, even though we get credit on the story. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's nice about the book uh, and what was really fun from an editor's perspective was going back through our work and just seeing wow, we've really had a, a pretty, um, pretty laser-like focus on these issues. Um, and even though they've appeared in various publications, I think if you look at the body of work, you can really see what we're trying to do. Um, you know, we've worked with really exceptional um, writers, um, photographers, um, you know, created infographics to explain issues. And so all of that comes to bear in this rather... Handsome, if I do say so myself, um, <laughs> kind of, you know, coffee table or cookbook size uh, a book, you know, filled with uh, with our stories and, and the pictures that accompany them. Uh, on um, that, so, on so, so it was really it was really fun. It was a really fun project. Um, I'm I'm so excited to to get a copy of it myself. But um, on that note, I want to see what what are in your opinion are two, one or two stories profiled in the book that you feel have made a big impact on a particular food issue. 
Yeah, um, I'll talk about a couple. I mean, one um, that actually leads off the book uh, deals with the whole issue of antibiotic resistance, that is, the overuse of antibiotics, especially in livestock agriculture, which is creating superbugs, um, which affect uh, public health. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this uh, writer, Marin McKenna, Who's been, who's been covering this issue for years. She's probably, I mean, she's the best on it. Um, she wrote a sort of a forward-looking piece on what a world would look like without antibiotics. And it wasn't like she came up with this idea out of thin air. It was something that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, was talking about, something that um, public health officials in, in the U.K. were talking about. I mean, it's on, it, it's something that is... Um, you know, it, it's not. It's, it's not, real. Uh, yeah, it's real. <laughs> you know, it's, it's real. Happening. They're very concerned about it. And so she just spelled out what it would mean. And, you know, things like simple infections um, could, you know, that were a leading cause of death um, pre in the pre antibiotic era, you know, those could come back. Um, things like, um, you know, um, um, simple, you know, operations that we now take for granted, like hip replacements and things like that, you know, would become very difficult without antibiotics. Right. Um, there's just a whole range of impacts um, that she runs down. And frankly, it was a pretty, pretty um, sobering and scary story, um, which when we published it, it just it went viral, um, got translated into several languages overseas. Um, and she was eventually tapped to do a TED Talk on it, uh, which she delivered a couple of years ago. And that TED Talk, in turn, has you know gotten over a million viewers. So, you know, it's it's one of those pieces that just really resonated. Um, and was early and was earlier on in the reporting of this really you know impactful issue, right? I mean, it seems like yeah, it was kind I of mean, forefront. yeah, people were. I mean, it was being reported on. Marin, you know, was probably at the forefront of doing that reporting, and we had done several stories with her. Um, but this one just really, really hit. Yeah, and I think it it was really part of that cresting of the wave of concern about antibiotics. And it was it wasn't too long afterwards that the White House and got involved in the issue, you know, and announced its. Uh, you know, program to try and reduce, you know, the misuse and overuse of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that work continues. And in fact, we had a piece by Marin today on, on the Ag Insider about um, other uh, issues arising with antibiotic uh, resistance in Europe, where she was, she happened to be at a conference in Brussels. Um, and that, that story was out today. Um, and, um, you know, available for for anyone to see. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, she, yeah, we were just hitting that issue. We'll continue to hit it, hit it because we just think it's a really uh, crucial public health issue right at the intersection of food and agriculture. Um, so. and, and you have a special promotion going on with the book, right? A special, yeah, we'll have a promotion on Giving Tuesday. So... <clears throat> Uh, the book, we're selling it through through our website, and it's basically you get the book in return for a donation. And um, we're having a special uh, um, cut rate sale on Tuesday for the book. Um, and so, uh, you know, it'll, uh, it, it, if you're at all interested, 
bats today to check yeah. it out. Yeah. You know, on our on our on our website. So, you know, I mean, one thing we want to do is we do a wide range of explanatory stories. You know, like the pollinator ones I mentioned. You know, we also do stories that have a lot of high impact in trying to change policies. And one particular one that we did on um, uh, pesticides in California um, had had just that desired impact. What, what happened there? On, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a reporter who, um, she did this deep data dive. It took her several months where she correlated um, pesticide use in California with census data in zip codes, which was not a particularly easy correlation to make. And um, once she matched up these two data sets, she found that the highest um, zip codes, or the populations um, that had the highest exposure to pesticides were predominantly Latino. Um, and, and I'm not talking 30 to 40 percent Latino. These were like zip codes where 70 to 80 percent of the population was Latino. Um, and they were in the areas where pesticide use was the highest. And actually, schools that their kids attended were contiguous with fields, and so there was a real issue of drift, pesticide drift. Yeah. Um, that story and some some others that appeared about the same time on this issue caused the uh, state to uh, revamp its pesticide regulations, and they've just recently proposed um, increasing the buffer zones between fields and schools and reducing. Um, the, the time period in which uh, growers can spray these toxic, you know, pesticides. So that, you know, that's the kind of thing where we see a direct impact from our work. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we like to see that, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and one great example um, of why supporting independent fact-based news outlets like yourself um, is so important. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I need, you know, to go, going back to your point you made earlier, I mean, you know, a blogger may, you know, link to three stories and spend like an hour writing something, and it's one of those six stories, yeah. you know, they do during a day. And, you know, and this story that I mentioned about pesticides by Liza Gross, I mean, she spent like six months cleaning up the data and being able to do this correlation and then several more months, like, writing the story and finding, uh, you know, the narrative and visiting these schools and talking to the students and the teachers and, you know, advocates involved in these issues. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of that work goes into it into yeah. a well-reported story. Yeah. Um, it's not something you can knock out, you know, between, uh, you know, coffee and lunch. Right. Right. And, I, and I, that is a really important point that I think... Um, you know, it gets is sort of lost in this day and age, right? People don't realize, um, and we've we've access to so much information, especially with the rise of digital. Um, and in a lot of these places, content is king, and so that means that they're just the the goal is to kind of continuously push out content as much as possible, like you know, quantity over quality, and and um, you know, that's that's not great <laughs> to to, yeah. to have a really informed public. Yeah, and I, I mean, and we knew that we, you know, that it's starting out, out, out of the gate, we knew that we didn't have the money to, like, build a big website to, to hire all the reporters to do, you know, fast stories that could build traffic. And that's why we pursued this partnership model, you know, where we're using others' distribution channels, you know, for, for our co-produced work. Um, 
And I think um, for a, a small organization like ours um, that has funding but not, you know, not not a great deal. I mean, it's a great model. We just have we just have far more reach than we could um, if we were just pursuing, you know, publishing content on our own site. Absolutely. Okay, um, we are unfortunately going to have to wrap it up um, for today. But before we do, I want to remind people that on Giving Tuesday, which is this um, upcoming Tuesday, uh, the 29th, there will be a sale on uh, the Food and Environment Reporting Network's book called The Dirt. And the proceeds um, are going to go to support uh, the organization. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I also want to mention we were really thankful that Michael Pollan uh, agreed to do the forward to yeah. the book. Um, he's one of our friends who's very aware of our work. I, I've, and, I've um, heard of him. You know, said, <laughs> said he spent a whole plane ride reading uh, reading the book and reading all the stories, a uh, number of stories that he wasn't aware of. And he just wrote a really fantastic uh, forward for us. So we're really pleased that he did that. Well, um, you know, I, I think it's because the book was so good and i can't wait to um <laughs> to dig into it i feel like he doesn't just yeah, do that I think, it'll you know? be, I think it'll be a nice holiday kind of gift thing and it just you know i i i, I i've only seen the page proof so i'm really uh i it's it just finished at the printer this week so um we should have it in hand next week and i'm just really excited to see the bound the bound final uh, yeah. work so all right. Um, well, Sam, thank you so much for joining the show today, and happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. Hope you <laughs> have a, a great one and all your listeners as well. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks. Okay. Okay, we are now going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we will be talking to Craig Wichner, um, co-founder and managing partner of Farmland LP, a company formed in 2009 to demonstrate that sustainable agriculture at scale is more economically viable than chemical-dependent commodity agriculture. Stay tuned. <music> Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Teeth People, and this track is called Poetry is Dead. She's her own female. She's her own female. That's why I like her. I like her a lot. Have you tasted the world's best cheese? Grand Cru Sirchois is the 2016 World Cheese Champion. Our partners at Roth, Wisconsin, make this gorgeous Alpine-style cheese in the rolling hills of Greene County, Wisconsin. Grand Cru Sorchois is produced by hand in Swiss copper vats and finished by aging on spruce planks. The quality milk and careful craftsmanship bring out the award-winning light floral notes, nutty undertones, a hint of fruitiness, and a mellow finish. Perfect with Riesling and Muscat, Grand Cru Sorchois is a guaranteed hit for any occasion. Check out their other offerings at RothCheese.com. You'll discover Buttermilk Blue and their newest release, Prairie Sunset, the golden-hued love child of Mimolette and Gouda. You'll also find recipes like the Raclette Reuben and Tomato Tartlets. Everything you need to know about the world's best cheese is at RothCheese.com. back on Eating Matters. Um, I now want to bring in Craig Wichner, the co-founder and managing partner of Farmland LP. Craig, welcome to the show. 
Glad to be here, John. Um, okay, so your company seems to do something that many people think is counterintuitive, which is demonstrating that sustainable ag is more economically viable. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about Farmland LP's model and how it actually works? Sure, glad to. Uh, so Farmland LP buys conventional farmland, and we convert it to organic, sustainable farmland as a real estate fund. Uh, farmland is, is a wonderful asset, and it's really uh, uh, underutilized and often uh, uh, poorly managed. Uh, and so what we do is we uh, add value really in three ways. The first thing is that we convert uh, the farmland from low-value commodity crops to higher-value crops, such as uh, from lawn seed uh, mm-hmm. to uh, butternut squash. The second way we add value is by uh, converting it to certified organic or sustainably produced or locally grown food. Uh, so, for example, that same butternut squash gets a nice price premium when it's um, uh, certified organic and turned into uh, organic baby food. Uh, we can get generally 50 to 200% price premiums for that. Uh, and then uh, and then the other way we add value is really by improving the infrastructure uh, on the farmland. Uh, so uh, converting farmland from non-irrigated to irrigated uh, or really doing capital improvements. Uh, one thing that people may not realize is that uh, 40% of farmland is leased uh, in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and that means that neither the uh, landowners uh, nor the farmers who are working on that land really have any incentive uh, or ability to, to uh, really do uh, you know, good capital improvements on that land, and it's been this way for a long time. So, uh, so us being able to go in and really act as, as that land manager uh, allow us to do those uh, very reasonable CapEx projects that really add a lot of value to the, to the farmland. Okay, so you as a company go in, buy the land, convert it. Um, uh, that's right. That's a model, right? Exactly. In, in, in short, in very, <laughs> in brief. Um, okay, so you mentioned 40% of farmland is leased, which I had zero idea about. Um, who actually owns this land that is leased? Is it the government or, uh, yeah, who are the landholders? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, there's there's $2.6 trillion worth of farmland in the U.S., and uh, that's the same economic value as all of the office buildings in the U.S. or all of the apartment buildings in the U.S. or all the uh, retail space and shopping malls. And so, and 40% of that is leased, as we said, so uh, it's really commercial real estate, just like the other asset classes. The difference is, is that only 1% of farmland is institutionally owned, so the institutional investors, large-scale investors they might be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Everything else is really owned by uh, uh, farmers or people whose parents or grandparents used to be farmers. Uh, and uh, really between 100, 150 years ago, actually, Abraham Lincoln signed the first Homestead Act that gave people uh, 100, uh, 160 acres of farmland if they improved it, such as planting crops on it. And so between 150 years ago and 75 years ago, uh, that program was in effect, uh, and the U.S. went from basically 100 million acres of cropland 150 years ago to 500 million acres of cropland in the U.S. 75 years ago. So most of the farmland in the U.S. Uh, was given away uh, somewhere about less than 150 years ago to uh, uh, basically families who were moving from basically the East Coast to the West Coast and spreading across the United States. Uh, and so that ownership still stays today. People uh, really who uh, live in cities uh, are the ones who actually own the farmland today, and they're really just, they really don't 
are not really connected with it. They're not paying attention to how it's managed. And we're at a state now where 53% of U.S. cropland is growing the low-value commodity crops, corn and soy, uh, just those two crops. So. In the in the 40% of farmland that's leased, does this um, account for both conventional farming and organic, you know, including commodity crops and specialty, or does it really sort of lean one way? You know, uh, just by the percentages, uh, only around 1% of U.S. farmland is certified organic. Uh, and so the vast majority of uh, the uh, farmland in the U.S. is really just growing these two commodity crops, corn and soy, uh, and, and that's being managed very uh, conventionally. The organic farmers uh, really have, uh, uh, really often have to own their own land. Uh, they need to spend uh, three years converting that farmland to organic uh, and then get a return on that uh, through growing the organic crops. Uh, that's very challenging to do on leased uh, ground um, to, to make that kind of investment and then convert it over. How is it that sustainable ag is is more viable? I mean, you mentioned the fact that um, organic crops get, you know, can, can demand a higher price premium, but um, I'm wondering if this takes into account all of the various inputs that are required to convert land um, to organics from conventional, um, and, you know, what are the other kind of drivers for, um, for making a, a profit on this? So the interesting thing is that uh the uh, today the chemical and seed companies actually make more money than farmers. Uh, so <laughs> wow. uh, the, the the farmers are really caught between the chemical. The conventional farmers are caught between the chemical and seed companies, uh, yeah. and then the, the the very few handful of buyers that buy these uh, 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 corn and soy and actually turn them into uh, the ubiquitous <laughs> types of food that uh, are, are sold in the fast food places around the, around the country. Uh, so the uh, by switching over to sustainable agriculture, it does take uh, a little bit of time to rehabilitate that soil, to go back from just monocropping to good crop rotation, so uh, pasture on the land with uh, uh, premium sheep uh, and cattle on that land. Uh, three to five years of that really regenerates uh, uh, the farmland, uh, then you can rotate in organic vegetables for two to three years, then rotating in grains for two to three years, uh, and then back into pasture. That's a good, solid, sustainable agriculture rotation, and it really works economically at scale, but it's really in some ways more complex than the modern uh, commodity farmer. Uh, uh, operates uh, the uh, crop subsidy systems that have been in place for uh, for a long time, really starting since the 50s, uh, have really driven the farmers over towards just growing uh, growing one kind of crop uh, uh, on their farmland, and all of their uh, capex is really tied up in that. Uh, it's, it is more profitable when you shift over. It's mm -hmm. just more complex, uh, more uh, more complex inputs, uh, but uh, you get a better return on that. It sounds like you you kind of take the long term uh, approach as a as opposed to the short term immediate proceeds profits. Uh, long term being three to five years, oh, um, yeah. uh, and uh, but but really it's a it's a shift in the way. Uh, farmland is being uh, managed. So, uh, you know, the uh, average commodity farmer today owns about $8 million worth of land and equipment. Uh, and uh, so they're kind of stuck uh, in that path, but it also sets up the kind of scale uh, that you need to operate in uh, in terms of sustainable agriculture to compete against that. And scale really does affect uh, uh, profitability and economics. And so by looking at 
sustainable agriculture at scale, mm-hmm. uh, we can convert land to organic uh, and then work with great farmers who are great at sheep or cattle on cropland or great at certain kinds of organic vegetables or or organic grains uh, and give them the scale that they need in order to operate and really compete uh, effectively even with their commodity uh, 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 counterparts. Uh, And it's really that that sustainable agriculture at scale Mm. uh, that really makes a big difference. What regions of the country do you uh, operate in? I'm just thinking about, you know, like where the like a majority of specialty like farms are and then where the majority of sheep farms that are sustainably run are um, and all that. Great. So uh, we have farmlands uh, 50 miles east of San Francisco uh, and in uh, Oregon in the Willamette Valley. Uh, so we manage about 13,000 acres of farmland. It's about $120 million worth of farmland. Wow. Um, I have to ask, what, what is your background, Craig, and how did you get into this work? Hmm. Uh, a combination of uh, uh, commercial real estate. I grew, I grew up uh, owning and managing investment real estate, um, but uh, my degree is, is in biochemistry and molecular biology and minored in economics. Uh, okay, okay, wait. And- so the opposite of Taylor and I. <laughs> Arts and humanities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that there are people with your degrees out there. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> yeah. and, and then I, I spent summers growing up on a farm as well. Uh, I'm not I'm uh, not the farmer of the organization, though. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Jason Bradford, is a Ph.D. in biology, expert really in sustainable agriculture. And so everything that we do is really very firmly grounded in the science of sustainable agriculture uh, and in the, the uh, principles of, uh, of commercial real estate. Wow. Um, okay, so I we recently had Ricardo Salvador from the Union of Concerned Scientists um, on Amazing our show. I know, I know. He is. Uh, he really, he really, truly is. Um, okay, and he and one of the things he talked about was the percentage of farmland um, in this country dedicated to growing fruits and vegetables, which is um, a shockingly small portion um, compared to what could be used to grow fruits and vegetables, and the, the amount, which is, I think, around 50% of, um, of fruit and vegetables that we actually import into this country. Um, why is this? I know that's a very broad um, question, but like, in, in your opinion, why, why is this the case? Wow. I know. Um, I know. That's a loaded question, but... Um. Great. <laughs> So, so for the three-hour show, you want the three-hour yeah. show answer or the short answer? Uh, yeah. The, 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 the short answer, I'll actually answer it in the negative in some ways, which is that why do we grow uh, corn and soy on 53% of U.S. cropland? Right. Uh, and we only eat less than 1% of the corn that we grow. The rest goes into uh, ethanol or feedlots or Twelve and a half percent of it is turned into high fructose corn syrup, and we eat 0.66 percent of U.S. Yeah. corn. So, uh, so one, our, our agriculture system is skewed, and unfortunately, we've been skewed towards growing the really the lowest value crops. And today, corn farmers are producing corn at less than the cost of production. That's not normal from an economic standpoint, or from an agricultural, uh, right. from an agronomic standpoint. So, uh, there should be much more crop diversity uh, uh, in the United States. 
there is uh, value to uh, growing food with the seasons and rotating that. And sometimes it's best to grow in the northern hemisphere, sometimes best in the southern hemisphere. Uh, but, uh, you know, th these kind of imbalances are actually what for us create really a tremendous uh, economic uh, opportunity. Uh, we, we think that there's about 80 to $100 billion worth of farmland in the U.S. that could be converted to more diverse organic and sustainable agriculture. Just to meet the current, <laughs> just to meet the current market demand, uh, not oh. even the, not even the growth of the market demand. So we we actually think that market forces will shift that over anyway. When, yeah. When you talk to landowners, sort of about um, about converting and sort of the work that you do, are they mostly receptive, or have you seen a lot of pushback um, in sort of what you're advocating for? Uh, farmers generally think we're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's usually, it takes us uh, working in a place for about two to three years before they start to kind of uh, look up at us, look us in the eye and realize that, uh, right. uh, that we're not so crazy and yeah. that we actually uh, are doing something good. Fact-based science. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, okay, so one of the things that um, Ricardo has um, been championing is this healthy farm vision plan. Um, can you tell us about that and how your how your work relates to the plan? Well, uh, uh, Ricardo and his team at the Union of Concerned Scientists developed this wonderful, very science-based plan on what was the uh, ideal way, the optimal way of managing farmland mm -hmm. uh, using sustainable agriculture rotations integrated with the, the natural environment. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful, concise, succinct uh, plan that really has a lot of depth to it. Um, we uh, independently uh, developed uh, our model for uh, uh, managing farmland economically in the optimal way, uh, getting the maximum productivity of farmland and generating the maximum economics from that. And it so happens that the two plans really match perfectly. And so, uh, so we're actually demonstrating that the uh, uh, ideal scientific way of managing farmland also is the most profitable. Uh, and that it's more profitable to uh, manage farmland sustainably uh, than to uh, uh, do it managing using uh, uh, commodity and chemical-based agriculture. All right. Uh, what are the long-term goals for a company like yours? Like, do you want to remain a privately held company, or how can someone like me contribute to this model and mission? Well, keep buying organic food right. uh, and locally Done. grown food and know, uh, know your farmer. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, the you know two things we think that there's a tremendous um, market need for uh, uh, more organic farmland and really the organic farmers out there uh, about one percent of u.s farmland is certified organic uh, but about five percent of the food uh, that is consumed in the u.s uh, 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 is organic about 40 billion dollars a year uh, worth of organic food and that's growing at 16 and a half percent uh, organic farmland is only growing uh, at less than half of that rate, so it's not even key. It's much, much lower than what we need, yeah. uh, and it's not growing as fast. So, uh, so then what the market can support, convert, it seems like. Yeah, we're yeah. trying to help convert that farmland uh, more quickly uh, through uh, uh, through through growing our business. Uh, we 
Actually, when we started this in 2009, we thought there'd be a lot more uh, competition. This is such a straight, hey, just manage farmland better, manage it more sustainably. Right. Uh, farmers win, investors win, everything would work. Uh, everything works. And uh, we thought there'd be a lot more competition. Uh, it's actually been uh, slower, and now we're looking at uh, the trends and actually wishing that there was more uh, competition. There's, there's just tremendous opportunities for growth, uh, and both on the economic side, and I think there's also a uh, tremendous need on the sustainability side uh, as well. So this is, your model seems like it's something that would garner bipartisan support um, given your focus on the demonstrated economic uh, value that um, that comes from sustainable agriculture. Is this something that you have um, seen in terms of support um, at the federal level, like around policies and, and um, regulations, or is this? Are you have you not really been involved politically as much? I uh, never used to be involved politically until over the past couple of years. We really saw the USDA uh, and the and the uh, Obama administration really start to make very real progress on supporting sustainable agriculture and promoting sustainable agriculture. Uh, we actually won a $250,000 grant to uh, work with uh, two other scientific groups to quantify mm-hmm. uh, uh, exactly the, the environmental benefit uh, that we generate on our farmland. How much carbon do we sequester? How much water do we clean? How many pounds of pesticides and fertilizers do we prevent? Uh, and we saw very great progress in terms of really supporting organic and sustainable agriculture uh, in in continuing to deliver these environmental benefits so much so that I've been spending uh, at least once a quarter uh, at the White House working on some of these issues, wow. including the upcoming 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, the uh, momentum uh, is now uh, up in the air. Uh, we're not sure uh, what's going to happen uh, going forward, but I'm hopeful uh, that the uh, uh, that the new administration uh, uh, recognizes uh, that uh, sustainable, sustainably produced food uh, and the environmental benefits that come from sustainable agriculture are a real uniting force for bringing the country together uh, and moving forward. Yeah, I mean that's great that some voices like yours are being hard, heard in crafting that uh, farm bill. Um, well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, I guess, share just sort of uh, more broadly sort of what you'd like to see in terms of policies that can encourage this type of work um, and growth in sustainable ag? Uh, well, uh, two, two, thing, two things I would like to see, one small uh, and one large. Uh, the small thing is that uh, right now today, uh, the commodity agriculture, uh, really in general, any problems that we associate with the current agricultural system are really from the commodity crop system. So the eutrophic zones uh, in, uh, 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 that flow down from the rivers and the pollution from the chemicals uh, and the sustainable agriculture, and they get all the crop subsidies. Uh, and sustainable and organic agriculture uh, really reverses those, cleans the water, cleans the air, uh, and we get no subsidies. Uh, and so, uh, in some ways, we would just like, just for, for example, the carbon that we sequester in the ground, for organizations that are already certified organic, regulated by the government, just uh, allow us to check a box, say we're doing good practices, and pay us for the carbon, for example, that we're sequestering in the ground. 
nice and simple, uh, and uh, being paid for benefits. Uh, that's a small thing and straightforward. Uh, the larger thing uh, is that we really do want a level playing field, uh, and uh, the Farm Bill is made up of multiple parts from Title I, which is the seven commodity crops, corn, soy, cotton, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then food stamps uh, on the other end. So this is all in one big, giant Farm Bill. Uh, we just want organic agriculture to be on a level playing field. We don't want to take anything away from the commodity agriculture, but we want to be on a level playing field. So if I had a dream, uh, it would be to uh, include uh, organic agriculture as one, as the eighth uh, commodity crop uh, in the Title I of the Farm Bill. So we get treated on the same level as corn and soy and organic agriculture. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> um, a, a lofty goal, but an important one to keep fighting for, um, in my opinion. Uh, okay, where, uh, we're going to wrap it up in a second, but where can listeners go to find out more about your company? Uh, we're at, at uh, www.farmlandlp.com. All right. Uh, a great model, super interesting, and I really want to thank you, Craig, for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having us, Jenna. All right. Um, With that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank both of our guests today, Sam Fromartz and Craig Wichner, for coming on the show. Um, And, of course, to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre Bienamy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.